Uh, and it's just coming on top of the hour for me, so I'm going to kick us off today. My name's Bonnie, and I'm moderating our call today. Uh, and I'd like to welcome everyone to the latest in the series of Community Matters conference calls. And today we're joined by Larry Schooler, Community Engagement Consultant for the City of Austin and U.S. President-elect of the International Association of Public Participation. And we've also got Eric Gordon, Associate Professor of Visual and Media Arts at Emerson College and Director of the Excellent Engagement Game Lab. So today we've got about 200 people joining us on the call um, and together we'll be talking about Engagement 3.0. And before we get started, I've just got a few logistics to go through. So like I said, we've got a lot of people on the call today, so it's really important that you put yourself on mute. If you can hear a little background noise that is coming from me uh, or from one of our speakers, chances are that it could be you uh, or it could be someone else. So uh, what I'd ask you to do is just be really conscious that you have put yourself on mute and that you've cancelled out any possible background noise because uh, if we don't all pay attention to that on this call, it's going to get pretty difficult to hear pretty fast. Um, we do have the ability to put everyone on mute. Um, and we'd rather not do that because that'll, that'll stifle the conversation. So if you could just be conscious of that and, and really make an effort to, to do that throughout the call. Um, we also have a Google Doc open and available for people. Um, we use this to take collaborative notes throughout the call and also ongoing uh, after the call's finished. And in there you'll find all of the questions that people have already asked regarding this call. And there are a stack of really fantastic questions. Um, also, a whole bunch of really great experience and case studies starting to come through as well. There's no way we're going to get through all of them in an hour. So what I'd really encourage everyone on the call to do is take some time, uh, add your own answers to those questions, share your experiences, and really help each other out. Because, like I said, we won't be able to get through them all today, but... Uh, you guys will be able to go in and, and dig around in that and add your own case studies and examples for the next week or so after the call. This call is going to be recorded, so if you know anyone that's missing out right now, um, they'll be able to go back to the Community Matters website after this call and download the recording. Um, it's great. So if you want to go back and listen to anything that's said uh, or share that with anyone else, you're very welcome to do that. Um, one thing about the Google Doc, uh, I use this to, to moderate questions. So uh, if you hear your name call, um, take yourself off mute, and that's your chance to jump into the conversation. Um, like I said, we have a lot of people on the call today, so if you're just joining, please do put yourself on mute um, until the opportunity you hear your name called um, to ask one of the questions that you might have posed in the Google Doc, and uh, that's your chance to jump in and talk to our speakers. There's a good chance we'll max out the Google Doc. Uh, it only lets 15 people uh, write in at once. Um, and so if you are trying to write um, or are just reading, um, maybe just refresh your document, close it, reopen it, uh, and, and you might get a chance to, to get back into that. And likewise, if you're not planning on taking notes, you're just planning on reading, maybe take yourself out, close the doc, reopen it, and let someone else have a chance to, to take their own notes. So that's basically it for my introduction. So I'm going to hand over right now to our great speakers and say thank you to the Orton Family Foundation for supporting these calls. And I'm going to hand over to Larry to start talking to us about Engagement 3.0. 
Thank you very much. It's a true honor to be uh, with you this afternoon, and uh, I, I should quickly say hello to the other people whose last name is Schooler that are uh, tuning in. I, I have uh, a number of uh, family joining me today, and I'm, I'm very appreciative. My main title is, is husband, father, and uh, son, so uh, thank you for being on the call. Uh, with apologies to people like uh, Bob Dylan, I think that the times, they are a change in community engagement. I've also, to quote uh, uh, Shakespeare, or to borrow from him a little, I've come to, to bury the town hall meeting, not to praise it. Um, what we once knew is that the town hall meeting is, I think, dead, but long live various other forms of engaging the community in what I would consider to be much more robust and much more meaningful ways. Uh, as president-elect of IAP2, the International Association for Public Participation, uh, we are looking for ways to empower you, your communities, your leadership uh, in producing powerful, prudent, productive, proactive public participation. Uh, and part of what IAP2 has to offer uh, is a spectrum of public participation that uh, illustrates the fact that there are many sizes of engagement to fit all, not one size. Uh, sometimes you may be wanting to just inform the public, and other times you may be wanting to empower the public to make the final decision. And so part of my message to you today is you need to think about where you fit on that spectrum for a particular process, particular project. You also should think about standards for engagement. What, what standards do you want to use as kind of your foundational principles to inform all of the, the public participation you may do across a single city, single organization? And both IAP2 and the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, or NCDD, have developed some core values or core principles for public engagement that I want to strongly recommend that you look into. This kind of work takes training. It takes some specialized study, and I want to encourage you to consider uh, doing IAP2's certificate training as well as other training in mediation and facilitation because um, not all of this is, is intuitive. Uh, a good bit of this requires a, a unique set of skills and a unique uh, set of core competencies, both to strategically orchestrate and, and plan for effective public participation, but also to effectively facilitate uh, in a community meeting or other public engagement context. The other thing I want you to think about today is thinking outside the box. If, if you would feel engaged by a particular technique, uh, whether it's a... Uh, a rock concert that has some input opportunities or uh, mobile booths out in the community or portable meetings, all of which I'll cover as we go forward. If you would find that engaging, chances are significant segments of the public would too. So don't confine yourself to thinking about those meetings where the seats are arranged like they would be in a, in a church pew and the microphones are in the aisle and the prize goes to the person who shouts the loudest. That's not very engaging for most people, uh, but there are plenty of ways to engage most people uh, to get to engage larger segments of the population uh, outside of that that traditional town hall. I'll close before I hand over to Eric with just a couple of, of pieces of data. Um, one of those comes from the American Planning Association in a survey study that they put out a couple of months ago, and that showed that more than 50% of Americans want to actively participate in community planning efforts, and that includes majorities of nearly all of their demographic subsegments. I posted a link on the Google Doc to their study, but it, it cuts across political affiliation, race and ethnicity, size of community from urban on down to small town. So uh, that's a particularly interesting finding for us. And also the National League of Cities found that municipal officials uh, feel very strongly about having 
public engagement processes in the in the 80 to 95 percent range, um, they also observe that it takes the efforts of the whole community to create and sustain this kind of engagement. Uh, and others, like citizens, the media, community, special interest groups, need to better step up for their proper roles. And finally, that uh, nearly half of those responding to NLC's reporting said that neither municipal officials nor residents have the skills, training, and experience to carry out and participate in effective public engagement. And so improving skills and getting some quality training may be as least as important as providing technology and or varied processes for engagement. But I will say unequivocally that the technology that Eric has been able to harvest uh, in the gaming realm is uh, doing wonders for the public engagement field, and I'm excited to share the call with him today. So thanks for now, folks. Thanks so much, Larry. Eric, do you want to jump right on top of that? Sure. Uh, that was a great introduction to uh, to this whole thing. I just want to say um, a, something a bit about my where I'm coming to this from, and I think that's that's useful. So I'm a, a trained as a, a, a new media academic. So I started studying um, how, uh, the internet, and in fact, this year I'm a, a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, where I'll be doing more of that. So it just gives you a sense of where I'm coming to this from. Um, I, the, a lot of the work that I do at the Engagement Game Lab um, is, uh, it, 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 well, all of it is technology-based, and um, but not not technology, not necessarily technology-centered. And let me say a little bit about that. So I've been working in technology and, and community engagement for about five years now, and, and trying out uh, different approaches and, and trying to um, understand the implications of those approaches. Um, my focus has been on using technologies to augment face-to-face deliberation and not replace it. And so I still believe that face-to-face matters. I still believe that physicality matters. And I think that technology can be really an, an important way of, of uh, enhancing it, creating more of it, um, and, and making it more meaningful. And I'm also particularly interested in using games to make participation fun, which I feel that the, the that element of fun is something that is that is often left out, and there's a kind of mistaken notion that fun means it's frivolous, and the serious work of engagement um, isn't allowed to be fun. So I'm I'm really keen on on changing that perception of of what it means to to engage uh, in in a community. So the the game projects that I've done, um, there are there are really two goals for these projects. One is to create better feedback for planners. Um, which is, of course, an important uh, an important element is that we want um, better feedback, better better data, and then the other is in, is to increase citizen engagement. And I th- actually think those are two separate but related things. Um, so engagement doesn't necessarily mean feedback, and feedback certainly doesn't nece- doesn't mean uh, engagement. Um, tied to that is our elements of of increased trust and collective efficacy, which maybe we have a chance to talk about later. So I want to just quickly share a few of the projects that, that I've done and as a springboard for talking about some of these broader concepts today. Um, one of the projects that I'll just briefly mention is a project we did in 2010 at the lab called Participatory Chinatown. Um, this was a project in collaboration with um, the Metropolitan Area Planning Commission and a, and a local CDC in Boston called the Asian um, Community Development Corporation. And this project was designed as, a, as an intervention into the community meeting. Um, participants gathered in a big room in this case, so we, we actually used the, the town hall genre. Um, and they played, but in this case, they played an online first-person game where they wandered around the streets of Chinatown with a character um, who was on, well, your character was on one of three missions. You were either finding a place to work, socialize, or to live. 
Um, and people interacted with, with um, characters not only in the virtual space but in the physical space with the people right next to them. Um, and this led to real-world conversations uh, about the future of Chinatown, but it was sparked by the, the gameplay itself. Um, the strategy was to start the community process by creating empathy uh, amongst participants. So using role play to create empathy to change the nature of the conversation uh, was what we tried to do. So in this case, it's not simply that the town hall um, doesn't, uh, doesn't work in its prescribed format, or rather the, the, the face-to-face doesn't work, but it's really a matter of augmenting that face-to-face to, to maximize its potential. So um, the result of that was a master planning document, of course, uh, but more importantly, it was, it, was, uh, it was really about creating a context for civic learning um, and enthusiasm uh, within, within the community and engaging a different set of, of people that wouldn't have otherwise engaged, and I can talk about that a bit more later as well. So um, I want to, want to take a few minutes to talk about another game. Um, and this is a game that we've more recently developed. The first implementation was in 2011. This game is called Community Planet. Um, Community Planet is similar in that it's designed to blend offline and online engagement, but it's, it's structured in a different way. So instead of having an avatar and wandering through a space, uh, the game allows you to create a profile, a uh, personal profile, answer questions and, and, and solve challenges and create media uh, in order to complete missions. So you're working towards a, a, a goal in a time-based fashion, uh, meaning that missions, um, instead of being within the time of a, a, a time frame of a meeting, missions go on for typically a week, uh, and there are multiple missions in a game. So uh, we've implemented the game in several cities at this point throughout the country. We played a five-week game uh, with the Boston Public Schools. Um, around the issue of what makes a quality quality school, and in that case, uh, we had about 500 players and thousands of um, thousands of, of comments and answers to challenges. Uh, we recently finished a three-week game in Detroit in partnership with the Detroit Works Project around the issue of long-term land use planning for the city, and we had over a thousand players and over uh, 8,600 uh, comments uh, within a three-week period. Um, and then all of those, all of that leads to that game finale, uh, game finale meeting where, where people come together and debrief about what they've learned, uh, from, from that game. So that's really important. And I'll talk more about the game mechanics if we get to it later. Um, but I just want to get to, and then we're about to launch in, in the city of Philadelphia and, and in some smaller cities as, as well. So the, the platform, it's a, it's a platform. So it, it, it can be accommodate, it can accommodate different places, but we're learning about how it works in different contexts and in different, um, within different size cities and in, and in different issues. So that's, that's really important. But very quickly, here are the, a few lessons learned that hopefully will springboard into some other conversation. Um, one, I strongly believe that engagement should be conceived within a narrative. So it's important to emphasize story um, and stories that already exist and to build tension even when appropriate. Um, and and so, so that's one. Number two, uh, engagement should begin and end. So if, so people don't want more networks to join. Um, you know, it's not people aren't looking for another Facebook or another another Twitter. But it's about creating different spaces that are that are unique and and directed and, and targeted towards uh, towards an issue. Um, there needs to be a record of conversation and process, and that's one of the things that the internet provides is is that we have an ability now to record that process both as a community resource and as a as a planning resource that. 
um, that those kinds of recordings can be, can build the narrative of a community across across uh, interventions. Um, face to face is not the gold standard of accessibility. I, I think this was um, you know already nicely put by by Larry. Um, there. You know, the, it, meetings are hard to get to. They don't always produce the best feedback, and they rarely produce social connections. Um, certainly, not everyone's comfortable in the situations. I mean, it, so it's not it, they're they're still used as a gold standard, and I think we need to get away from that. But I won't belabor that point. And then my final point is about youth and and how it's important that youth be central to these processes. So in all of our games, we've involved youth from the very beginning, not in a separate kind of youth charrette process, but as, as, um, as partners uh, in a community pro- process. And that's been uh, effective and, and uh, absolutely um, um, integral to the success of these projects. So we've worked with youth to create the content that then gets, um, that, that gets used within the community um, to, moderate, to moderate the games and to do outreach for the games and even to facilitate meetings. Uh, in, in Detroit, uh, in our Detroit game, we found that 74% of our players were under 35 years old and um, nearly 50% were under 18. Um, so we had a, a, a very different kind of context of engagement where adults were there with youth and the co-presence of youth and adults was really important for the effectiveness of the game as well. The adults knew that the youth were there and modeled behavior based on that. Um, so we, we, we heard from people that they actually... Um, changed how they spoke the, and, and how they kind of formulated their sentences. They, they actually focused on grammar because they were modeling for youth. Um, and, then, and then secondly, the youth, um, because they were invited into a process that was official where adults were listening and participating, they also changed behavior, even though they didn't necessarily, they didn't necessarily talk to adults within the, within the process. That wasn't what was important, but the fact that there was an audience of adults that were listening to youth change the nature of the engagement. So I think all of those things are, are, are really important and lessons learned from the, from the research that we've done in, in our own game implementations, and I think we can see that more broadly, and um, I'm happy to talk more about any or all of these. Fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Um, both really uh, interesting and, and powerful introductions from you guys. What we have now in... Um, in this document, I'm, I'm counting about 150 questions, um, broken up into different... We'll just do an all-night call. Yeah, we'll just keep going. <laughs> um, I think what I'm going to try and do is pull a key question from each section and try and work through the key sections so that we can at least touch on a bunch of the issues that have been raised. Um, I'm going to throw the first question to you, Larry. Asked by Ben Roberts, and Ben, if you're on the call, um, feel free to take yourself off mute and uh, and and jump into the conversation here. Um, Larry, to to give you a sense, the um, the question here is: What do you see as the most exciting untapped possibilities for weaving together in-person and virtual processes for engagement? Well, Ben, thank you very much. Um, I, I, that, that question excited me a great deal because it gave me a chance to sort of think big and, and dream a little bit. And, you know, to me, one of the most exciting untapped uh, possibilities would be to essentially train a, a an army, a veritable army, a peaceable army of conversation facilitators uh, in every community in the country um, to then tap into a conversation that was being conducted both in person and smaller groups 
but then connecting everyone in the conversation, um, both online and perhaps with broadcast media uh, as well. So a, a way for people at multiple ages, multiple levels of education, multiple locations, even multiple languages uh, to engage in one uh, national conversation on a topic that's relevant uh, to us all. Uh, you know, something like our our federal budget or our immigration system or something to that effect. I mean, we I don't think we're lacking for the technology to make that happen. Uh, I don't think we're even lacking for um, people who would be willing to step up and, and make some of that happen. Um, what we would need would be uh, a, a group of elected officials or a group of decision makers who would be willing to essentially uh, make themselves vulnerable to good ideas and, and, and important input coming from that uh, participatory uh, exercise on a grand scale. It's, it's, it's much less effective and much less enticing for people to participate if it's, if it's just the exercise, if it's just you know, flexing their civic muscles, if you will. Um, but if we had, whether it be the White House or members of Congress on relevant committees or some other subset of, of decision makers, say, we're going to ask some questions of the public, and, and the answers to those questions will inform uh, the, the policy direction we move in afterwards. Uh, I think the, the potential would be uh, extraordinary to truly involve uh, uh, all Americans in, uh, in affecting uh, major, major national change. That's fantastic. Thanks, Larry. And uh, Eric, do you... Um do you have anything to add around the types of platforms yeah. or the, the other ways that people can start to bridge this gap? Well, uh, just to, to – I, I think the, the national um, scale actually poses some problems for, for this sort of thing, and the, the importance of location here is, is, um, is key. Uh, and, and if there is a conversation on a national scale, I think it's important to have some sort of local component to it because, the you know, with, within the – um, within location, one of the things that one of the benefits of doing um, local processes is that you have reputation systems that often pre-exist um, that that pre-exist the online engagement. So, um, and so when you get to that scale of, on the national level, you have there's there's more anonymity, even if you're using real names. There's more. Uh, there's, there's, there's just less at stake for the participants. So, so I would say it's really important um, if we if we were looking to do something at that scale to actually conceive of it as a as a network of locations as opposed to simply the nation. Um, and that, you know, we just have to be careful about about how to how to scale up conversation, even on a city level. Um, sometimes thinking about neighborhoods um, as opposed to the city is a is a more effective. Scale to begin with, for the for the purpose of, of reputation and responsibility. I, I want to just chime in and say that I agree with that completely. I, I just think that um, you know, to some extent, I'm at an advantage as a local uh, community engagement practitioner because I think some of the conversations we have as a city are more quickly uh, impactful on someone's life than it's possible to do at a national scale. But I also think that some people. Uh, when it comes to thinking about political issues, uh, don't think nearly as much about their local communities, but do focus heavily on on larger scale issues, be they statewide or, or, or nationwide. And it would be my dream, my my vision, that we instead of um, having such vitriolic uh, rhetoric, uh, you know, in, in camps isolated on on different sides of a spectrum, uh, that essentially takes the form of a debate. That we could harvest that in the combination of in-person, you know, physical conversations and virtual ones uh, into true dialogue and deliberation, 
that that enables people to see that there's merit to to having uh, truly civil discourse rather than uh, polarizing debate. You hear? The the it's an interesting point that you guys are making around um, focusing on on local conversation and scaling. One of the um, the key focal points of these calls is looking at community building in in rural towns and often in smaller communities. And we have a bunch of questions focused on those for communities that are uh, significantly smaller than um, some of the cities that you guys have referenced so far. Um, is there uh, are there differences in what you need to do in a smaller community than in, say, a, a city like Detroit? Eric, do you want to talk a little to the scale of engagement? Sure. I, I think that the, the size of the city doesn't matter as much as the reason for engagement. So if it's a small community and there's something pressing, um, then then it's it's easier to to uh, it will it would be easy to get people engaged. So again, it goes back to that 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 story and narrative uh, thing that I was talking about before. That we can create a the, the you know the story in the small town might be uh, something that affects everybody in that small town. And by creating a having an online portal of of one sort or another mm-hmm. or or a game or or anything uh, that's going on in that community, as long as it's framed appropriately and it provides the 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 uh, you know appropriate appropriate tension around what that issue is, and I think that that people will participate. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that's true in all cases, even in a large city. It's the if the if the reason why you're asking people to participate is simply to participate, then that's not going to work. But but providing an actual reason, and and that might be something's going to change, or it might be that um, you know it, it it might be framing it in the context of of People need to work together for change in the future, but here are some small steps to get there and provide people with the opportunity to actually see progress. And so do you think there's any difference around um, density? So a lot of these communities are a lot more dispersed where cities are quite dense. Um, It's probably easier to build um, a sense of momentum when you have a lot more people to access do you think there are any differences or tensions around uh, engagement, taking those factors into account? I would just say really quickly that I think sometimes in small towns you have closer-knit networks. So, yeah, there's a, a sense of, um, you know, the, the scale can work to build momentum, but um, but in, in small towns to take advantage of those, of those tight networks um, might actually be beneficial for a process like this. Excellent. And uh, I'll just ask if if you are um, experiencing some background noise, I'd ask you to put yourself on mute just so that we're not getting feedback or or additional um, information there. Thank you. Um, Larry, did you want to add to that as well? I'm talking about... um, Yeah, I'll I'll try. I have to confess to folks on the call that um, I have never lived in a city smaller than uh, 125,000 people. So I don't know that I am in any way an expert on on differences between, you know, urban engagement and rural. But what I would say is that I think there are some universals, and I would agree with just about everything that Eric just said in terms of providing a compelling reason for people to participate and showing them why. But I think what's really key is figuring out 
where people in any size community are going, both for information and for fellowship, for gathering. You know, that, that varies significantly from one city to the next or from one city to one town. You know, in Austin, you know, lots of people go to sports events and live music where, uh, in other cities they may congregate for completely other reasons. And in small towns, you know, religious institutions may be prevalent or, uh, certain stores that cater to the dominant industry, uh, in the community may be popular. And so I think that as, as long as the engagement exercise taps into where people are already going, uh, both to see one another, to interact, and also to get information, then uh, engagement can be effective uh, in, in a rural setting. But it's just important to think about, uh, you know, the unique ways that people in any particular place are are gathering and, and getting information. And telephone um, technology and, and engagement tools that I can talk about a little bit uh, are, I think, particularly meaningful. There's a uh, a number of different vendors now that provide essentially what they call a, a telephone town hall concept, and I bet a lot of people on the call have, have gotten a call uh, asking them to participate. I know I have. Um, and, you know, for, for dispersed communities um, who may not even have, uh, you know, Internet access or cellular phones but may still have a phone, uh, it can be meaningful to either give them a number to call or call them uh, to get lots of people onto one conversation, even if they're miles away from one another, uh, to have a single conversation about that uh, that town or that area. Um, that's a, a great piece of technology. If you have links to that, can you add them into the Google? Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah, Eric, mine are at the, you... at the bottom. Oh, great. Eric, I'm sure you've also got a bunch of technology uh, platforms that might help with this kind of stuff. Are there any that you want to list? Well, sure. I, the, I mean, it, it's this kind of this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities here. The, um, you know, texting has been has been really useful in in some communities. Um, there's a great platform called, um, um, well, it's just it just uses voice over internet protocol, but it's built in Drupal, which is an open source uh, software system. It, it was. Um, and it was it's called um it's called voice drupal and it's a it's a lovely platform where people essentially can create um mailboxes it works sort of like a social system but you do everything via the phone so you can um so for those even without texting plans they're able to connect with others in in meaningful ways or without access to a computer um and you're able to send group group texts essentially via um via voice um, and you're able to to respond to people's mailboxes in and again much like a social system. So I think it's one of the most one of the more exciting um, systems that I've seen recently to really accommodate some of the technology gap issues. Let me, if I could, just very briefly chime in. Um, one of the one of the interesting newer developments uh, with with uh, text messaging has to do with um, something that Code for America has developed that's been deployed in Philadelphia, and it's also getting deployed in, in Austin shortly. It's called Textazin, um, and it's essentially a way to uh, enable people to participate in a dialogue just by texting in uh, their their input. And uh, sometimes you can even set things up to where if someone texts a particular response, then a follow-up question comes via text, and so it can actually be more than just a a quick one single question, but actually a few questions. And then there's some technology called Poll Everywhere in which you can uh, have people voting via text message at a, at a meeting, uh, but they don't need to be uh, tied to a um, 
There doesn't need to be clickers. There don't need to be. They don't need to be close physically to the system. They can just be anywhere. It's it's, it's over the internet, um, but it gives instant results. Kind of gives you a sense of the room or the sense of the community on something. Um, and if you're televising the meeting, you can put those questions up on the screen, and someone can be sitting miles away and still participate. So that's another suggestion. So those are some fantastic examples of using technology to reach out to audiences that are potentially further away or um, or not using the standardized types of engagement techniques that you might use. Moving into this next section here, which is all about reaching diverse audiences, um, we've kind of talked about using technology to access new pockets of, of people. Um, do you want to talk a little, um, and Eric, I know you mentioned this a little with the work you were doing in Detroit where you were able to reach older people and, and younger people. Um, can you talk a little more about how you reach out to different communities to build participation from diverse groups? Yeah, so in um, in, in all the cases that that uh, where, where we've worked, we've done a lot of um, in-person workshops to to be coupled with uh, our with with our online games essentially, and so that means opening up. Uh, we partnered with schools and libraries and community centers and any anywhere there's a physical touch point. I think it's important to to kind of open that up. In in Detroit, we, the the Detroit Public Library was um, was a great partner and had designated terminals where people could use uh, the the machines and even had times uh, during the game implementation where um, where people could come in even without library cards because that posed an issue for some people um, so you know so creating those opportunities for for access uh, computer access uh, in a number of different ways is really important especially for something that had the where the best experience was was um, on the web and not not via text um, the the most challenging thing is actually um, reaching a diverse set of um, non-English speakers. Basically, um, that's been the most challenging thing in, in all of my work and and in um, in looking at other projects as well. You know, being able to create uh, an online space where, and even an offline space for that matter, where you actually have a diversity of, of uh, a linguistic diversity, I think is very difficult and, and it's a nut that hasn't been cracked um, as far as I'm concerned and a real um, interesting area to, to for further research and further projects. That's great. Um, Barry, do you want to add to that? I think I'd love to, yeah. I mean, this, this is a real area of focus for us and I, I want to emphasize that by no means is Austin, um, you know, fully figured out uh, what to do in this regard, and it would be very interesting to me to see on the Google Doc and elsewhere uh, folks' ideas. But a couple of the things that we've done that sound actually somewhat similar to what, what Eric was describing, um, one of which is, is something we're calling um, meeting in a box, where essentially we take the contents of what we might be doing for a, a community meeting that we were going to host and just put them uh, in a physical box or uh, make them available as a uh, download, as a PDF, and you're enabling um, each community, each family, each small civic group, each religious institution, you know, whatever the group, whatever the size, uh, to host their own community meeting on a topic that you've chosen and uh, submit the feedback uh, in return. This is something that I think has enormous potential because it really taps into the existing civic capital that exists in our communities without asking people to come to a whole separate meeting or go to a whole separate place, you know. 
add this to something they're already going to, their neighborhood association or their church meeting or their scout troop meeting or what have you, where they've already decided to commit the time regularly, but just build this into some of that time uh, and come away with a great piece of input and more buy-in for someone to participate in that in that organization because they see how impactful it can be. And then the other thing is finding uh, high-trafficked areas in your community uh, and deploying uh, you know temporary portable booths, uh, kind of like what I heard Eric describe, we call it Speak Week, where we find our, we look at our highest trafficked areas and we put a, a temporary kiosk there with some information and some questions to ask the public, usually uh, via dot voting or dotocracy, uh, but sometimes free responses that they can post on a sticky note and put up on the board. Um, but the point is to, um, you know, engage people where they are, to not, to not expect that they're always going to, to be able to come out, but not necessarily, uh, will they either uh, you know, find the website, but if you can just literally get into their, the sort of flow of their everyday life, then you have a chance to, to capture some really meaningful input from a lot of folks. A, a very similar, pro, a similar part of the Detroit process was uh, they did a, a, what they called a roaming table, which sounds really similar, where they... Is that it? Get cut off? <laughs> no, you're still here. You oh, just, okay, I hear some music. Okay. Comes, yes, all right. <laughs> I thought that was the whole Guys, music. If, no, if, uh, okay. if you are um, playing some music in the background, if you wouldn't mind making sure that you're on mute there, um, it sounds lovely, so it's, uh, it's a little distracting. So I could I could speak over this. It, it adds some mood. Um, <laughs> the, give it a little rhythm. Yeah, so I, I was just... Um, what Detroit Works did was uh, Detroit Works long-term planning. They they did something similar with these roaming tables, where they they just parked the tables in various parts of the city, um, you know, over over the course of a several-month period, and 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 collected and just and just talked to people, and uh, and it was a really effective part of their strategy. And and this is a good time to point out that it's really important to craft multimodal strategies here. That you know, doing a Doing an entire, entirely online process is folly, and then I mean, it's, and it's becoming more, more and more clear that doing a process that that doesn't, you know, use the affordances of the internet is is also folly. So, so finding ways of, uh, as, as Larry put, like getting people where they are, that means that means finding all sorts of possibilities to um, to reach people both on and offline. Uh, yeah, that's a, a great point, and um, I think it speaks to a lot of the, the different uh, communities and audiences that you would potentially be trying to meet. I want to move on to the next section now, um, and it seems to me like a lot of these questions here are focused on uh, how much things cost, how much resource and capacity needs to be allocated. Um, Eric, it seems like the tools that you have, um, and, and Larry, you talked about this as well with your meeting out of the box. Um, are these are these tools? I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> getting really distracted by that music. Uh, it seems like these. Take five, take five, guys, take five. <laughs> it seems like these tools, the kinds of things that. Um, in some situations, people can pick up and deploy in their own cities at fairly low cost. Kill the um, music. Is there, uh, is there anything that you guys want to talk to around uh, what people should be thinking about around the resource allocation and, and 
staffing and capacity to set up one of these projects in their communities? Uh, I can speak to that a little bit. I mean, I, I would say that um, it certainly can be expensive to um, totally uh, sort of reach every single person you want to reach uh, in order to get them uh, aware of a public engagement process. And so I've really been um, working on my my frugality skills these days and trying to find ways to, for little to no cost, both get the word out about my um, community engagement process as well as um, uh, source different parts of it in ways that are very low cost. So, for instance, some people pay for space. Uh, we almost never do that. We use either our own facilities or schools or just other spaces that people are willing to, to let us use. Um, some people pay for advertising and marketing. You know, we have uh, a captive audience from our own uh, traditional media. We have our own social media following. We have our own television channel, which not only helps us get the word out, but helps us extend the reach of our events so that if I hold an event in the council chamber, I might have 100 people show up, but then I can reach thousands of people who are watching the uh, meeting and able to participate remotely uh, via their phone or, or their computer. Um, so I, I don't think that these things have to cost a lot of money. I, I think, obviously, it depends on the scope of the process and so on and the amount of people you're trying to reach. But there are tremendous assets at your disposal, not just if you're a city or a governmental entity, but if you're anybody that's that's working on behalf of the public and, and trying to, to hold public events or, or involve the public uh, that you can leverage to, I think, make this fairly uh, cost-effective. You do, though, I think, need to be sure that you have the personnel in place so that when input starts coming in, the staff that's in place can robustly record what's coming in, document it, and illustrate how the input is being uh, implemented. So that's something that has to be thought about very carefully. Great. And Eric, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would just, I would just echo everything that that Larry said, and just emphasize uh, how, how. Some one of the fantasies about technology early on was that it was going to be it was going to be plug and play, and, play um, and all all we needed to worry about was, um, you know, getting getting the app and turning it on, and and we, we it's clearly not uh, the the case. And these things, it's not the technologies that cost money. It's it's actually it's actually staffing them. It's the it's the um, the real sort of um, the human encounters, the outreach, the all of that stuff that that needs to happen, the, re the relationship building, the technology just can help facilitate it. But you still need people on the ground to um, to, to get those connections going. Um, even if those people are on the virtual ground, they're 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 still there. There's still a human component, and and that's what that's what has to be factored into planning and, and budgeting. Well, let me make another quick point, if I can, about that because I think that's extremely important. That. You know, there are plenty of people who, when it comes to a particular city, a particular governmental agency, or anybody who's convening a process, will look at that convener with some degree of suspicion. So, for instance, you know, people who know me might hear me say, come out to this community meeting, and they will, they will heed it, whereas people who've never seen me before associate with me with being the city, and if they've had one bad experience with the city, then they'll be less likely to heed the call to participate. But if they hear about it from what I'll call an ambassador, somebody who is either formally or informally um, uh, recruited to help both get the word out and sort of co-convene some of these public engagement events, that can make a real difference in the level of trust that that person has that the participation process will be authentic and meaningful. 
So we have a City Works Academy here in Austin that I'm sure others have uh, elsewhere where we educate about 30 or so adults a year on how the city works, and I'm really working to make those folks into ambassadors so that when we've got new engagement activities, they're helping me to get the word out into their particular part of Austin and, and convince people that it's worth uh, participating in. And I, I don't think you can um, underestimate the value that that can have. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think there there, there seems to be a, a tension between um, local authenticity. So if someone, uh, someone tells you to, to participate in something that you already have, have a trust relationship or you, you, you trust the, uh, the organization or it's recognizable versus, versus or maybe um, not versus, but in parallel to the, the trust or, or lack of same of the, of the government. But it seems to me that the, the government having the, the, the city um, in some way endorse the process uh, even if it's in, even if it's in, and hopefully is in, um, in collaboration with some other ambassador, as you say, um, I think that's really important. The, the city has to play that role because that does leave leave some authenticity or create some authenticity, even if there's lack of trust in, in the city's follow through. So it's it's the the local connections that sort of open the door um, and and give people the the, the trust to um, to participate, and then there's this. This, this other entity that would have the capacity for follow-through, which in most cases is, is a city government. So I think it's, it, I've, I've seen in, in all of the projects that we've done a, a, a real tension between government on one hand and, and local organizations and trust on another. So that's a, a great point to segue into the next section here, which is all about politics. Um, what uh, examples, if any, do you guys have around dealing with some kind of political obstacles or tension with local governments? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a uh, with all due respect to whoever asked it, that's a very broad question, and uh, I'll do my best to try to sort of pin it down. I mean, I, I think that certainly in a, in a local government context, in a political context, you know, you have what some staff members and some members of the public may think are sound policies, you know, just what ought to be done based on sort of the expertise in the field and the knowledge of what the community uh, is interested in. And then you may have some elected officials who, for whatever reason, uh, feel that, that they need to enact a policy that is different than those two things, that is more responsive to, you know, political pressures or to, you know, particular constituencies they need to appease. And so, you know, one of the things I think is very important at the outset of any public process is not only to tell people how their um, participation will be utilized and, and how much uh, they will be able to impact the, the decision, um, but who's making that decision and how that decision might be made. Uh, because I always, you know, in most of my processes have to tell folks that we'll have this public process, we will prepare uh, a full report of all of the input and, and give that to the decision makers, usually the city council, and they'll also have recommendations from staff, but ultimately they will make the decision on how we go forward. So most elected officials, I think, when faced with you know some consensus across multiple interest groups on a particular uh, policy are, are probably more likely to um, go the way that the public wants them to go. Uh, but particularly on divisive issues where consensus is hard to, to discover, uh, you're going to have cases where elected officials may appear to be ignoring some of the input they've received. Uh, and I think it's very important that we contextualize that for the public at the outset, that 
you know, we're here to have a public process that is designed to inform the decision makers. And ideally, you have some decision makers at the events. I do that quite a bit because you want them there to really be accountable to the folks that are giving their input and show how seriously they're taking it. But at the end of the day, it's still their decision, and they'll make it based on a variety of factors. And uh, ultimately, uh, some of the input may be heated a little bit more uh, than other parts of it. And to add to that, I, I, it's difficult to measure success of any one of these processes by looking at um, looking at specific comments or or or, or interests that got enacted or or were directly um, or directly influenced the decision because that may or may not happen. And the hope is that that engagement. This is what I was saying before about that distinction between both feedback and, and engagement. That we're also doing capacity building here, and there's learning that's taking place. And we can't underestimate the importance of that. That that by by participating in a process where there's a civic education that's taking place that will ultimately empower people to to participate in the future and will create stronger communities. And so um, I think one of the problems that that I've run into is then that that what people will ask me is like, okay, give me an example of something that somebody proposed that happened, and you know, in a game. And and I think, well, that's that's not really what what matters. I mean, what what's actually more important to me is is whether or not through that process people learned about the process of decision making, um, how the the, the 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 structure of government, what the issues are, and hopefully created uh, social connections that could lead to um, that can lead to actionable groups in the future. So all of those things are, are less tangible than, than these specific decisions, but I think uh, equally, if not more important. Uh, so there's hello. a great comment um, from Valerie here in uh, just adding to some context to that question. Um, I, I want to make sure that uh, she gets a chance to, to speak up a little on that. So, Valerie, if you're on the line, uh, you might want to pull yourself off mute and chime in. Um, so sorry, so go ahead. Oh, this is Valerie. Um, yeah, I've, I'm doing a lot of work on Cape Cod in wastewater issues, and the citizens are often the most thoughtful ones, but they struggle to break through the professional um, standard systems and uh, credentials and assumption that only the experts know what to do. So that's the structural problem that the Cape really needs to solve in order to move into more sustainable approaches in communities. I think that's, that's a, an issue or a problem that, that a lot of communities face, and this is why it's, it's not there, – there's that learning component that I'll just reemphasize, that it's, uh, it's, it's not just letting people speak, um, although that is important, but there's that um, – you know, creating a compelling narrative that will ultimately lead to learning. We want we, is that we want to build capacity. We want people to understand the issues. This is the role of the expert. Um, people to understand the issues so that they can make better decisions. And that sometimes requires a creative process. And so one of the reasons that um, that I've turned to games in, in my work is a means of getting there. But it can, we can do that in a lot of ways, but we can't forget that there's, there's actually teaching involved in the public process, and, and we have to allow that to transpire, um, as opposed to simply just reaching people where they are at the moment and getting their opinions. There has to be a, a back and forth. Uh, one of the things, Bonnie, if I can jump in here, um, one of the things we haven't talked very much about that we really need to and we don't have much time to is um, 
thinking at, uh, before any of these tools are deployed about an overall structure for a public participation process, planning it out from the start. And one of the things that often gets overlooked in that, uh, but I suspect Valerie's probably doing it, is at the beginning of the process, before you really go public, you spend some time with some of the key um, sort of thought leaders and community leaders and vet a public participation process approach with those folks. And what you often find is the staff in your in your agency may have a particular feeling about where along the sort of spectrum of public participation the public's impact should be. So they may think, if you're looking at the IAP2 spectrum, that it should be on the sort of left end of just inform or consult, whereas some of the public may think it more should be uh, collaborate or even empower. And so um, sometimes a compromise needs to be forged in that early phase between host agency and community where you decide, okay, you may not have exactly as much input as you'd like, but you're still going to have some. And agency folks, uh, you may not have quite as much control as you want to have, but you'll have a good bit of it. And, and maybe get elected officials into that conversation too because you know that's really who a lot of the, the staff folks answer to is, is their elected officials. So um, having that planning discussion at the front end and deciding exactly the role that the public's going to have um, and being... Uh, transparent about that, I think, can be uh, very worthwhile. Larry, that feeds into one of the other sections we've got here at the end of this document uh, around measuring success. So, mm-hmm. really, one of the things that you're going to do in that initial planning phase is set yourself up with some key performance indicators to measure how successful this process has been. Right. Can you guys give some give some examples of? Um, of some performance indicators that you guys use, understanding that a lot of this stuff is often qualitative, uh, which makes it a lot more difficult to measure. Well, that's right, but I think it's it's also important to think about some quantitative pieces. We we just got finished with a about a three-year comprehensive planning effort for the city of Austin called Imagine Austin. And throughout that process, we had a citizens' advisory task force who frequently was putting, I'll just say, pressure on on the city to continue to increase and bolster the, the, the pure numbers of participants because, after all, it was a plan that was going to affect all of Austin, and we really wanted to have a sense that we had engaged uh, all of Austin, or at least the task force did. And so, to some extent, I think you need to uh, be able to demonstrate that your entire stakeholder population uh, was at least touched, was, was in some way reached out to, uh, to be able to say, um, you know that we've we've meaningfully uh, tried to tr- tried to engage folks. Of course, you're you're leading horses to water in a lot of cases. But if you can demonstrate, you know, we were in these publications, we were in these other uh, advertising methods. You know, we were spread out over these areas. We had our meetings in different places. I think that's some of, those are some important metrics to think about. But it also is qualitative. We we do a survey of our citizenry, a statistically valid survey, and ask questions about. You know, did you, have you engaged? How have you engaged? What was that experience like for you? It's qualitative in the sense that it's not a, a number, but it is a, a numerical, you know, rating. Like, I was very satisfied at five versus not satisfied at all at one. Now, we've had some of that research done by graduate students as well as by a, a, a private firm we use for a general citizen satisfaction survey. Uh, so I, I don't think that, that that can be underestimated as a, a potential tool to measure how you're doing. Also, on a process-by-process basis, you should be asking uh, how participants feel about the outcomes and about the process itself uh, so that you can continue to improve going forward. 
And then what are the key ways that you would communicate that back to the community, to the local government, to any other additional clients that you might have um, that need to understand this information? Communicate back the feedback? The, the, uh-huh. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's communicated back through fairly traditional ways. I mean, sometimes it's a public council briefing. Sometimes it's a media release. Um, I mean, those reports that we do of surveys of the citizenry are usually public record. Uh, and so we utilize the tools that we have at our disposal to make sure people are aware that we conducted it. And, and you know, to the extent that they want to see all of the questions and all the results, they're almost always uh, readily available. And, and I think... You know, the more that we can show how we're innovating in the engagement side in response to some of what we've heard, the better people are going to feel about um, how they're influencing the way we're doing things. I just want to add to that that as, um, I, I'm a qualitative researcher, and the, wor- and the work that I do is uh, more ethnographic in in, um, in approach. So, so we do a lot, do a lot of interviews uh, with people, and I'm really interested in issues of how people. Um, frame um, their their involvement again um, but but how people sort of tell that story of the of the issue and how that changes from pre-engagement to post-engagement uh, also interested in how people understand trust um, or how, how people can communicate their trust um, that's a really important indicator uh, to look at and then and then collective efficacy which is how do people feel empowered to act together to get things done and does that change over the course of an engagement process so I think those are some of the of really important indicators that, that we're looking for in, in a lot of the work that we're doing. And I just want to mention that we also um, have just started a, a relationship with the, um, uh, with the mayor's office of new urban mechanics uh, in the city of Boston, which is um, the, really the innovation office uh, is located within the, mayor, um, within the mayor's office here. And um, and one of the things that we're we're doing here is we're we're trying to um, we're trying to actually put evaluation um, in a meaningful way into all technology projects that are that are implemented with within the city. So thinking about um, scaling technology, um, or I'm sorry, sourcing technology, um, studying it in some sort of systematic way where we have indicators that are that are not just project specific but are across projects. Uh, and then properly scaling. So what does it mean to share results, um, not only within the city of Boston, but, but outside um, uh, into to other cities uh, around the country? So, so we're looking right now at all the implications of, of what it means to meaningfully study um, uh, in a both qualitative and quantitative way these, these projects and how you, how you do outcomes evaluation, evaluation around innovative projects, which means that you don't necessarily even know the questions going in, but you're trying something new. So how do you build an evaluation around that? Those are all really fascinating questions that we're trying to figure out here. Well, fantastic. So speaking of uh, feedback and engagement, uh, I'm just going to pass over we have a, a few minutes left on the call, and I'm going to take this chance to pass over to Rebecca from the Orton Family Foundation and Community Matters um, to ask for a little feedback from you guys. Yeah, thanks so much, Bonnie, and thanks to Larry and Eric for an amazing call. This is a perfect segue. Many of you have already received messages from us, so you know that we are actually doing an evaluation of this program as we speak. Uh, we've been running for about a year and a half, and we really want to know how the conference calls are helping you, how they could help you even better, and what we could do to improve them. This is really critical in helping us to shape this program and make sure that it meets your needs. 
So if you have already received that link from us, you've got about 24 hours left to go in and answer that survey. It shouldn't take you more than about 12 to 15 minutes. And you have a chance to win one of $300 gift certificates to a great independent bookstore as a little bonus. Um, if you're new to us with this call and this is the first time you've joined, you've not received that link, but I'll make sure you get it right after this call today. And so if you do have time to give us a little bit of feedback and tell us what you think, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Becca. Um, so uh, hopefully everyone's really enjoyed our call today, barring uh, musical interludes. Um, I'd love to just finish up in the last minute or so that we have left here with uh, some final thoughts from Larry and Eric. Um, the, the section in the document here we didn't get to, to cover a lot of questions was how you just really reach out and get people into those rooms. It seems like getting people there is, is one of the biggest battles you're going to face in engagement. And guys, I'm wondering if you can give us some tips on that um, and really just your top three kind of steps or, or actions that people on the call could take tomorrow when they wake up first thing in the morning or during their week next week uh, to really start to put some of this stuff into practice. Eric goes first. Okay, I'll go first. Um, good, you get to end it. Um, I, I don't know about if I have a top three, but I'll, but I'll say this. One, one of the things that, uh, that I think is important in this space is that we think about, um, think about engagement as a design problem, which means that every, uh, is that there are different, every context is gonna propose, is gonna pose different problems. And that design problem is, needs to be solved by a mode uh, or a, a variety of, of different tools and different approaches. And so start off with the problem, which is, which is how we want, we want to get people to, to, to have a conversation about this. And then we think about all the ways in which, in which that can happen. What tools are most appropriate to get people in certain places? How do you, how do you build capacity? How do you get people interested in, in it? And then how do you scaffold that interest to create learning and, and, and appropriate feedback? So it's been really, you know, my approach and it's been really effective is just to think about, um, to think about these as proposing design solutions for what I think are design problems and, and, uh, and making them nuanced and multifaceted. Fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Well, when it comes to the three things that I think folks should think about doing tomorrow, I think one of them is to get familiar with all of the options available to you for public engagement by looking at the IAP2 spectrum, to think about standards for effective public engagement through IAP2 and, and the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation to kind of give yourself a foundation. And then when it comes to turnout, think about yourself. When you think about times that you've turned out to participate in something, what has that taken for you? Did you need childcare? Did you need food and refreshments because the meeting was over dinner? Did it need to be near your house? Did it need to be near your office? Did it need transit access? Did you need someone who was going to be there to kind of hold your hand and explain the issues to you? Think about all the ways that you yourself are impacted by a call to participate and what it takes for you to really feel comfortable, a small group discussion, an open house where you get to linger with a staff person. If you put yourself into the shoes of the people you're trying to entice to participate, you'd be surprised by how that could influence the ultimate events that you plan. And the last thing I'll say is, in my humble opinion, uh, by doing this work, by getting involved in this work, you are going to be a part of what I consider to be uh, a small R revolution in the way we govern both in the United States and hopefully around the world. Uh, the top-down governance model, I think, is, is fading away, and the collaborative governance model is, is here to stay, 
and uh, enticing people to be part of that, I think, is a very exciting thing for you to do. Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. Viva la small R revolution. <laughs> uh, so uh, with with those inspiring last words, um, it gives me great pleasure to thank both our speakers, Eric and Larry, for joining us today and sharing such amazing thoughts and inspiration. Um, we do have this Google Doc that is absolutely jam-packed with amazing questions and now a huge amount of personal insight from our speakers and from everyone on the call that's been adding their thoughts and case studies to that document. And I'd encourage everyone to, to keep going back to that document, answering each other's questions and really sharing your own experiences so that we can build that up into a really great uh, piece of information that we can share. And, and, and uh, Monty, if I can be... just say thank you to everybody who asked questions and, and supplied comments. I mean, my practice will be immeasurably improved and strengthened by what everybody's contributed today. I second that. Oh, absolutely. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, and check back on the Community Matters website. You'll be able to download this call as a, as a file and then eventually the document that we're all contributing to. So again, thank you, Eric and Larry, and for everyone joining the call today and, and sharing your thoughts and insight. Um, Till next time. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, everybody.